0: The small island of Igloolik. it's in northern Canada. Bewildering place. Um, This territory is that upper tundra level where the regular temperatures are minus 20 below zero. And uh, you can imagine how frigid and cold that would be. But also, looking at the terrain, you recognize just how difficult it would be to navigate territory like this. And yet, the Inuit people have been doing this for over 4,000 years. Conditions can change. Trails can disappear. uh, Temperatures can grow so cold that the situation can get so dangerous so quickly. And yet, explorers, scientists, scientists, I've been mar- uh, marveling for years, looking at how they navigate these territories without any form of technology, no maps, no compasses, just simply reading the, the wind and the snow and animal behavior, stars and tides. But things are changing now with the advent of the GPS. The Igualic hunters have begun to rely on these computer-simulated maps, especially the younger members. It's convenient, and in the old ways seem to be, well, just a little archaic and cumbersome. But this has led to some problems. What do you do when you don't know how to read the signs and your GPS device breaks down? Or what happens if you develop tunnel vision? You're so focused on your device that you don't see the thin ice that is ahead of you. Well, one... An uh, anthropologist who's been studying them for more than 15 years notes that while satellite navigation has some advantages, its use also leads to a deterioration in wayfinding abilities, and we can feel for the land. As I thought about this, it seemed like a powerful analogy to me of the Christian life. While walking with God, Christians through their life are called to navigate the terrain of life. And to seek God's will and making decisions and having confidence for the future. And in that process, it can be easy to get lost in the drifts of uncertainty and and stifled by distraction. So how does the Christian navigate the terrain of life? Well, Genesis 24 is a beautiful chapter of the Bible. It's beautiful first and foremost because it's a love story. Everybody loves a good love story. I enjoy talking to couples, and uh, especially if they like each other still, saying, tell me about when you met. And you see their eyes light up, and they, they tell the story with an endearment. But Genesis 24, it's also interesting because it's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, some 67 verses, so you'll be praying along with me that I get through this somewhat quickly because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. It's one of those chapters where you could easily miss the point, too. You might think that this is a chapter about how do I find the right person to marry, and I think that you can extrapolate that principle from it, but something runs deeper here in this passage. You see, the big question of the passage is, how do I know that God is behind the scenes in the decision that I'm making? And What do I mean by God being behind the scenes I'm referring to his guiding presence that is observable, but not overt. He didn't directly come out and say something to you. He did not give you one of those signs that you said, this could have only come from heaven. No. You see his hand working through the everyday, ordinary events of life. You see, each and every person in this room has to learn how to navigate that terrain. How do I do that when things seem so unclear, uncertain? I've got a lot riding on this decision. And as the people of faith, we're also asking the question, what does God want in this situation? Because our call in this world is to please God with our life. We want to know his will. We want to obey it. But what is God's will? Well, as we follow this story, you get to look at four different characters. You see Abraham, a servant, Rebekah, and Isaac. And they're presented with the same type of decision. It's a, a long process, but there's four different distractions, I believe, tension points that they must overcome to navigate the terrain of life. So we'll see this story unfold, and it'll pick up with Abraham in the first nine verses. Let's read the first four verses together. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will, uh, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now Abraham at this stage of life is old the text says advanced in years and he has one last item on his to-do list. What is it? It's to find a wife for his 40-year-old son who has not been married yet. Uh, the text tells us in a couple of different places that there's two concerns for Isaac. The first is he's not so supposed to marry a Canaanite woman. The second we find later on, is that he's not supposed to leave the promised land. Now, you kind of think about that for a moment. How do you find a wife when you can't marry anyone in your close proximity and you're not allowed to go anywhere else to find them? It gets pretty difficult, doesn't it? So Abraham has to entrust this most important manner, uh, matter to his servant. Now, we don't know precisely who this servant is with 100% certainty. But looking at the text and seeing their role... It's probably Eliezer from Genesis chapter 15 who Abraham had said that he would leave his estate to if he did not have a son. Eliezer would have been his chief of staff, his financial consultant, his head of operations, probably also his closest friend in the world. But this is a deep matter, an important matter, so he asks him to swear by placing his hand under his thigh. Doesn't that sound kind of awkward? I felt awkward when the elders asked me to do that when I was being sworn in as senior pastor here at the church. Went and washed that hand later. Um, The purpose of the oath was to give Eliza a sense of the importance of the task. Essentially, Abraham saying to him, there's nothing more important in the world for me personally, that I can entrust to you. Have you ever had someone trust you implicitly? If you mess up this trust responsibility, you hurt them. It's one of those types of responsibilities when someone says this to you, you feel such honor because they trust you to this depth, but you also feel the weight of the responsibility. I think Eliezer's feeling that weight. Let me read verse 5 to you in the NIV. What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? That's a legitimate question. Abraham is asking Eliezer to travel approximately 500 miles to visit a family that he has really had no contact with for over 60 years. Eliezer's to find... Uh, Isaac a wife, she will need to come willingly to a land that she's never known to marry a man that she's never met. I mean, a legitimate what-if kind of question, right? I don't know about you, but I can relate to what-ifs. You see, when uncertainty comes to me, when I need to make a big decision my brain tends to live in the land of what if. It's almost like a computer simulation starts running and I think through the thousand what ifs and then I start prioritizing and categorizing in terms of degree of importance. And then my brain generates 50 possible solutions and searches for the flaws within those solutions. You see, in life there are always hypotheticals that will be quite possible, potential outcomes that could happen, even probables. But you can also what-if yourself all day. You can grow so overwhelmed by the potentials, possibles, probables, predictables that you get stuck in the mud of indecision or worse. You fall into the quicksand of fear. Abraham, the man of faith, does not succumb to this what-if distraction. Listen to what he says in verses 7 and 8. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. Now there's two important principles that I see in this text coming from Abraham's response. The first is that he does not compromise on what he already knows to be right. See, for every person there is a moral will of God for your life. It is God's black and white, right or wrong, moral will for your life. So for Isaac, two things absolutely clear. Do not marry a Canaanite. Do not leave the promised land. Clear, plain, no ifs, ands, or buts. Don't lose sight of that. Abraham knew what God's will was in that area. He knew it. He knew how to follow it. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, We urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. As we have taught you, you live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. God's will is for you to be holy. God's will is for you to do the next right thing. But isn't it true in life that when we are concerned about the unknown, about the future, how events will unfold, that we are tempted to make moral shortcuts? Eh, maybe, maybe Isaac could marry someone a little closer in proximity, or Maybe we ought to send him off. It doesn't seem like this plan is going to work out. There's no way that he'd possibly be able to find a wife if we let God control the situation. And those moral shortcuts end up sending our life into a tailspin if we take them. We saw Abraham do this in Genesis 12 when he went to the land of Egypt. The second principle then comes out of the first principle, and it was this, that he entrusted the outcome of his situation to God. See, when you're distracted um, with the what-ifs, your decision-making faculties might choose to make a shortcut, but if you're walking by faith, faith says if God is behind the scenes, he will ensure it happens. If God is working then he's ultimately responsible for the outcome. So my job in this situation is just simply do what I know God is calling me to do. You see, Abraham's not willing to live by what if because he's been walking by faith for far too long. And we see that in the text. When you look again at verse 7 and 8, he talks about his experience of walking with God. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me. Abraham, saying, look, over the course of my life, there's been plenty of what-ifs. Do you think there wasn't a big what-if when I was leaving Ur of the Chaldeans? But God's been faithful. He's shown up. When God makes a promise, he brings the promise through to completion. And I know his promise is here. I know that he intends for Isaac to have descendants. I know that it was not in God's moral will for him to marry a Canaanite. Therefore, God must be in this situation as we move forward. And if not, Eliza, if you fail, well, don't worry. God has another plan in mind. See, when you start learning to trust God with the outcomes, the pressure's off. And I know what the big fear is. The biggest fear in your life is that you're going to fail. What if the bottom drops out? What if I can't pick myself up off the ground? Well, friends, trouble and failure does not necessarily mean that you are out of God's will. Sometimes God uses trouble and failure in your life for his purposes. We might think of it as a tragedy. He looks at it as a course correction or as a serious source of growth. And sometimes trouble comes precisely because you're doing the right thing. Do you think that Jesus was outside of God's will when he was approaching the cross? No. He was directly in the will of God. So, if we avoid what God's calling us to do because of the what ifs, we might miss something bigger and better that He has intended for us. And Eliza gets the memo, he hears the message, it hits home. He finds that courage to take those initial first steps. Have you ever been in a decision making process and found that sometimes the first step is the hardest step to take? Well, he does. He steps out in faith, and he moves forward. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then the servant took ten men of his master's camels and departed, uh, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside of the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. So the next steps of the journey, 500 miles northeast of Abraham's dwelling, He strategically places himself by the well because this is the place where the young ladies would come out. Now you can imagine what the next question is here. How am I going to know? Which girl is the right girl? What do you do in this kind of situation? Flip a coin? Do you go up to them and say, Hi ladies, would anyone like to be a contestant for the Promised Land Bachelor? (laughs) I don't think so. See, conventional wisdom creates all kinds of schemes, doesn't it? We think of plans and we we try to put them into motion. We're like, this is going to work out. This is great. Let me tell you, every time that I try to scheme and plan, it tends to fall flat on its faiths. So you have to do what Christians have been doing for centuries, even millennium, all the way going back to this passage. You have to pray prayers the tried and true method. In fact, here in Genesis 24, this is the first instance where we see someone in the Bible praying for the Lord's direction. Eliezer says, "O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by a spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, there's something that I want you to see and make clear about this prayer. You might view his request as kind of like a random ask for a sign from God. Uh, You've been around church for a while, maybe. I've been around church for a while, and I've heard this expression, I'm putting out a fleece. I'm laying it out there. It's an allusion to that story of Gideon, isn't it? God had given Gideon some pretty clear instructions. This is what my will is for you, and Gideon comes back to God Because he's afraid. And says, God, unless I see something significant, I don't think I can trust to move forward. Doesn't sound like a very strong principle, does it? To put out a fleece. To say, I'm going to request a sign because I'm afraid that God's not going to do what he said he's going to do. No, God has given us normative means for directing us means like His Word, means like prayer, means like wisdom principles. Those are the signs that if you learn how to read them, if you start recognizing God in the midst of those things, then it's much easier to navigate the terrain of life. So Lizar's prayer is not putting on a fleece. No, he's saying that I need... To see the right kind of things in this person. It's a very specific request. Look at it one more time. He says to her, I'll let you, uh, please let down your jar, and she'll say to me, Drink, and I will water your camels. Eliza is not asking to see random signs, he's asking to see superior character. In this woman. That's a fantastic way to pray. I mean, think about this, okay? In this culture, it wouldn't be uncommon for a stranger to approach someone and someone then to offer them water. That's not superior character, that's just common courtesy. But for a woman to say then in return, let me water your ten camels, I want you to think about the workload here for a minute. A camel goes across the desert. It's deplete of water. It can consume 25 gallons of water. She would have to walk down multiple steps to a spring carrying a little three-gallon jug. We're talking about 80 trips here. That would require somewhere in the neighborhood of two to two and a half hours of intensive work. What kind of woman does that? Well, someone who is others-focused, hardworking, kind, a cut above. You see, sometimes in life, we're, we're waiting and waiting and waiting for miraculous signs, and God's got this huge sign that's just flashing with wisdom saying this is the right decision. And we're not moving because we're not reading the signs of wisdom. Now, don't don't get me wrong. Uh, Don't hear me saying that I don't believe in miracles. I mean, by God, uh, who he is, by virtue of him being the God of the universe who has created the natural laws of the universe from his spoken word, okay? He has the right, the ability, the power to bend those natural laws, break those natural walls for whatever reason he wants, when he wants to do it. But having said that, he doesn't tend to operate in a haphazard way. He tends to lead, guide, direct, move individuals through those normative means that utilize your intellect, your emotions, your spirituality, So when you pray for guidance, I would submit that wisdom dictates asking God to reveal things to us that are normative in nature. God, I don't know who you want me to marry. Would you reveal the type of person that I should be marrying? God, what kind of job would utilize my natural passions and talents and abilities to to move in this career and bring glory to your name? Father, where could I be best strategically located so that I could be a good father to my family, a good church member to my church, and, and, and on mission for you in that area? Those are the types of prayers that God moves in. You're not asking for some obscure phenomenon. You're, you're, you're talking to God with specific, direct, unmistakable guidance. But even in the midst of that, even as you're praying like that, you still have to wait and patiently observe. Uh, verse 15, the story moves on, and it's interesting what it says. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Before the prayers even out of his mouth, Rege- Rebekah shows up. So this is kind of intriguing, right? It's getting good. Verse 16, onward. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water from your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran again to that well, drew water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. She does everything that he had prayed about, but still he watches and waits. I think there's a Wise discernment here in Eliza. You know, life and activity with God is not about being impulsive, random, sporadic. It's more about learning to read the signs and, and watching and seeing God moving in your prayers, not seeing just one random thing and being, saying to yourself, oh, that's it, that's the open door, I'm ready, let's do this. But wisely, patiently, Prayerfully seeking God's will and only moving when all of those signs line up, when you see that God's behind the scenes in the situation. That's a stable approach. So, verse 22 continues When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold, and said, Please. Tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. So she's family. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master as for me the lord has led me in the way of uh, to the house of my master's kinsman jay packer writes this believers are never in the grip of blind forces fortune chance luck fate all that happens to them is divinely planned and each event comes a new summons to trust, obey, rejoice. That's what Eliezer does, doesn't he? He praises God when he sees these signs starting to manifest. How often do you do that? How often do you stop and pause and just look at your life circumstances and say, I can see God was working here. I can see God present here. I, I, it was clear that God moved things in this sort of way for this to happen do you stop and, and reflect and, and give him glory when he's working in your life? Or, or are you always just praying for the next thing? The scriptures are replete with examples. Psalm 9:2. tell of his marvelous works. Recount his marvelous works. I found myself in places of discouragement and despair. And, and I've just simply taken the scriptures on that advice. I've gotten into my journal and I've just started writing out, this is where I see God working. He's moved in my life in this way. And I tell you, if you're ever feeling downcast in spirit, that is salve to the soul. Because you see God's presence. You know He's with you. And it bolsters your confidence to know that He'll be with you in this next situation. Now the story moves on. Verse 28, the young woman ran to her household she hears all of these things. She's excited about meeting Eliza. She wonders about the implications, but now she's got to take him home to meet the family. Now, for some of us, that's a joy. <laughs> You're so excited. You're driving this person to your house. You're talking about your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your aunts and uncles and cousins. It's such a joyous, fun activity. And then for others of us, we're caveating the entire way there to the house. We're saying things like, well, now you've got to understand. Uh, my dad he can be a little, you know, forceful at times. He means well, but yeah, sometimes he can be a little direct. I wonder which Rebecca was doing on this way to the house. Um, let's get to know this family a little bit. We are first introduced to Laban in verses 29 to 30. And uh, there's a key insight here. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the, man, uh, toward the man to the spring. And then the text says, As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, with the parenthetical statement, his eyes lit up. Right? Now, Hebrew narrative tends not to provide filler details. It's terse, it's direct, and it characterizes people within those first introductory statements. Laban is a money-grubbing schemer. We know this from the first moment. We're going to continue to see this as he has interactions with Isaac's son, Jacob, later on. Why does the Bible do this? The Bible places a high premium on your character. It teaches that subtle character blemishes early on become uh, fatal character flaws later on. We might tend to think in a moment when we're doing something that is morally compromising, that this is just a decision in the moment, but really that's a decision that is shaping who you will become eventually on down the line. Young people, I can't say this enough to you. Each and every decision that you're making, each and every step is defining who you will be. It was Thomas Paine who said these words. Listen closely. Character is much easier kept than recovered. You have to start when you're young You have to choose to live with integrity then because that follows you forward as well. And in Laban's case, his subtle greed grows to become downright trickery and manipulation, even at the expense of his own daughters. And you have to ask yourself the question, is that the kind of person I want to be like? Well, no, you don't. So it starts with what you're doing right now. Laban invites Eliezer into the house to sit down for a meal. However, is kind of one of those get-things-done kind of guys. He gets to business. He's not worried about all the niceties and that kind of stuff. He says in verse 33, I'm not eating anything until I say what i got to say. So as the story moves forward in verses 34 to 48, he masterfully retells the events that took place Emphasizing the family relationship, explaining those uh, specific asks for unmistakable guidance that he saw with God, and then highlighting the superior virtue of Rebekah. And then he comes to the big ask in verse 49. Now then, If you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Well, Laban and Bethuel, I mean, they're shocked by the forcefulness of this guy's argument. You can almost kind of see them tongue-tied in their statement in verses 50 and 51. They say, well, the thing has come from the Lord. We, We cannot speak to the bad or to the good. Behold, Rebecca's before you, take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Tie a bow on it. This is a great story. There's no more tension moving forward from here, right? <laughs> Not with Laban. <laughs> with Laban, there's always an ulterior motive. There's the surface story, but then there's the Laban story that's running underneath. Elizar wakes up early. He has to be sent on his way. He has one goal in mind: "I want to get Rebecca back home. I want to bring Abraham peace of mind before he dies." Then Laban and his mother seem a little put off. Verse 55. Her brother and mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while. At least ten days after that, she may go. And I know what you're thinking on the surface. Well, that's not that bad of a uh, a request. I mean, isn't it a kindness to allow this young woman to say a proper goodbye? She's going to be traveling away, cut off from the family 500 miles. I don't think there's going to be a lot of family vacations this direction. But the Hebrew is a little more indeterminate and ambiguous. Essentially, their statement could mean something like, it could be a duration of ten days or possibly stretch on into years. This is what we call a good old-fashioned delay tactic. Well, Eliza wants nothing to do with it. Verse 56, "...do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me that I may go to my master." And then Laban and his mother's response gets downright unethical. Verse 59, let us call the young woman and ask her. So while they were quick last night to hear the story, be excited about the story, take the gifts. Now, when everyone wakes up in the morning, they're finding a way to back out of the situation you get the sense that they never really had sending Rebecca off to the promised land in mind, and they certainly don't have any uh, desire to give the gifts back either. So the weight of the decision rests on Rebecca. I want you to recall the implications of this decision. You're asked to leave everything you've ever known. You're cut off from your family. You go to a land that you've never seen before to marry a man that you've never met before. And in addition to that, now you're in this social dynamic where you're experiencing significant pressure from your family to make a decision. And I think they have one decision in mind. They want her to stay. Can you imagine what a big distraction that would be? Well, family pressure, relational pressure, is a big distraction in the life of faith. You remember what I told you last week? I said to you guys, you need to start making bad deals. You do. You guys are just too preoccupied with making good deals in your life. you got to start making some bad deals. You know, those bad deals that conventional wisdom says this doesn't make sense, but faith says this makes all kinds of sense to do this because God is moving in the world. What do you think happens when you start making bad deals? You're going to have people all around you that say, oh boy, I wouldn't do it like that. That's not very smart. That's relational pressure. I was reading a book recently about missionaries. Um, It's called Serving as Senders Today by Neil Perillo. And In the the book, he shares that when missionaries tend to go to family and friends and, and other significant individuals in their life and tell them about God's unmistakable call in their life to go and bring the gospel to a distant land, that they meet all kinds of relational pressure. Some of it can be like extreme statements that say things like, It's too rough out there. You know, in that that world out there, there's riots and wars and hatred and violence and, and famine and disease. Or maybe more subtle forms of pressure that can be equally distracting. You're needed here. You should stay here and invest here. Don't waste your education, don't waste your life. Why don't you focus on getting a good job now, and then on down the line, you can make that kind of move. How could you do this to your family? How could you take your kids away, your grandkids away from their mother, grandmother? They need her. Do You hear that pressure? It's a lot of pressure. Now, Rebecca's certainly feeling the weight of the pressure, But she responds with few words that demonstrate the depth of her faith. She says, I will go. Sometimes that's all that needs to be said. You know, God has called you to do something in this world. And you know because you know because you know because you know that this is what God's calling you to do. You've run through the gamut. You've asked the what-if questions. God says, I will be in the what-ifs. You've looked out at the situation and you said, how will I know that I'm making the right decision? And God says, you'll know because I will direct you in it. And then you get the people who come along and say things like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. But God is working behind the scenes. You know because you know because you know because you know. And the faithful response is, To that, I will go. Rebecca is a deep woman of faith. I put her response of faith on par with Abraham's call to go to the promised land from Ur of the Chaldeans. The story picks up with one final tension, though subtler. Uh, Rebecca and Eliezer have journeyed the 500 miles back to the Negev where Isaac is currently living. We pick up at verses 62 and 63. The text says, Now, Isaac had returned from Bir lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening. Now, that word meditate means to reflect deeply on a subject you you get the sense in this little section on Isaac that he's still dealing with Sarah's death there's this melancholy that's fallen over the man in his 40s he's walking out in fields all by himself he's in deep reflective contemplation he's hurting Sometimes when you go through deep pain, you, you enter into your shell, and it can be really hard for someone to break you out of your shell once again. Would he be able to find joy again? Would he be able to find love in a new individual? Would he be able to break out of this loneliness and despondency that's fallen upon him at this point in his life? Well, this is the good part. This is a love story. Look at verse 63 through 67. The text tells us that he had lifted up his eyes and saw and behold there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife, and he loved her. The Bible doesn't say that often. He loved her. So Isaac was comforted after His mother's death. God had grown up a new shoot in his life. New life, new vibrancy, new joy. There would be the ability to move forward in his walk with God. Isn't that a good love story? I love those kind of love stories. Friends, as we close, let me leave you with one final principle that I've found helpful. Since God is in control of every detail down to the smallest detail, here's what you can do. You can relax. He will reveal his plan for your life and his time. This analogy has proved helpful for me. I want you to think of God's will as a sunrise and not as a sunburst. Early in the morning, the sun begins to peak above the eastern horizon. You've been out on the beach and seen this. It's a beautiful display. The sky lightens. The first streaks of uh, light come across the sky and then the sun just crests above the horizon. Eventually, it makes its way up into the sky to where you can see the full sun and then it advances into the midday where the sun shines radiantly upon the earth. God's will can be like this. At first glance, We see his plan dimly, and then the outline begins to emerge, and then slowly over time, the clouds vanish, the darkness disappears, and the brightness of his revelatory presence fills our lives. Do you ever sit out and watch a sunrise and just sit there and fear that it's not going to come up? when you see those first rays of light, do you say to yourself, oh, ah, boy, I hope the sun keeps coming. I hope it doesn't stop right there. You don't. Why? Well, because it's been following this course so many times in your life from day one. It's like clockwork. The same is true with God's will in your life. You never see everything in advance But like clockwork, if you keep waiting, keep trusting, keep doing the next right thing, he always reveals his will. So relax. Do what God is calling you to do today. Let the things of tomorrow take care of tomorrow. Listen to Jesus' words. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all those things will be added to you. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?